Appreciate Kelly filling in today in Beth's absence out in the Beth and Mayor Lou are out trudging around Southern California. So uh, tough life, but anyway, that's uh, we appreciate it so much. Tonight we come to what is basically recognized the seventh paragraph of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but it's our 11th message on the creed, so we've obviously broken it down a little differently than the traditional way of breaking down the Apostles' Creed. We come to the part that talks about a subject that is quite honestly not very popular in our day, not very much in vogue in our day. As a matter of fact, it's many times scoffed at, it's laughed at, it's, it's questioned, it's, it, it's, it, there's wonderment as to whether we should even as sophisticated 21st century believers believe something like this. But yet it's something that's taught in the scripture. And that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing that the scriptures talk a lot about God coming, Christ coming. The Old Testament talked about the Lord coming to judge. The New Testament talks about Christ coming back not as a lamb but as a lion, not coming as a, as a savior but as a judge. And yet, again, in many, many places, even within churches, even within bodies of believers that profess to be, quote, a church of Jesus Christ, there is a, at best a misunderstanding, at worst an absolute denial of the fact of Christ coming again. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But this all falls in a natural progression of what the creed is talking about. The core of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, is really... It's witness to the past, present, and future of Jesus Christ in this middle section. It talks about, at the beginning, God the creator, the sustainer, the God who is over all. But then it talks about Christ in his birth, his death, his rising, his ascension uh, in the past to glory, his present reign on earth now, and, and finally his, his coming at a future date to be judged. If we were to read the creed again together tonight, it would sound like this. I want you to hear it down through verse, uh, this seventh paragraph. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and we dealt with what that means. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From, and the old word in the creed was from thence, I'll just say from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So you see the progression there of talking about Christ all the way back to his pre-incarnation, really, all the way back to his pre-birth pre as a baby in the manger in Bethlehem, coming right on down through all of his work, all of those things that he accomplished on the earth, and finally coming to understand his coming again, his second coming. I want you to look at two passages of scripture with me just briefly tonight. We won't spend, uh, we'll look at a lot of different things, but I want you to see the, the idea of judgment from each of these. First, turn with me to Psalm 96. Psalm 96 and verses 11 through 13, the last three verses of that particular psalm. The psalmist writes at the end, now this is, a, this is a psalm about worship. We've referred to it, we've preached on it, and talked about it, and taught it on occasions in conjunction with Psalm 95, which is also about worship. 
But in the last three verses, he says this. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. All of God's creation will praise him and bless him and honor him. And they will all sing before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the earth, or he will judge the world in righteousness and the, and the peoples in his faithfulness. So the idea of, of God coming and, and, and judging the world, both, both believers and unbelievers, coming in a judgment uh, ex expression is not just a New Testament idea, but it's old and new. And then flip over with me to the book of Revelation, right toward the end, chapter 22, which is the last chapter of the whole Bible. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. And this is Jesus being quoted in the final message that, that he is giving to John and talking about what happens, and, and this is what he says. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So he says, I'm coming quickly, and behold, be ready, look out. There is a time when I will reappear, and I will come on the scene, and I will judge. I'll bring my reward. And, and to those who, who receive rewards, will re receive rewards on the basis of what they have done and what they have done with the, with the gifts that God has given to them. And then he just expresses his authority. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He says, I am, I am the one with all authority from time present, time past, and, and time future, and really eternity past and eternity future and time present. He's simply saying, this is the authority with which I come. Now, in looking at the, at the creed, in looking at that statement, he will come, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead, we see a, an idea here. We see the, the creed is sort of a charter for life, a charter for understanding what the Christian life is all about, and it begins to work itself out even more clearly as we look at it. You know, our, our world today is a world that is captivated by pessimism. Uh, you know, now I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, say I'm too sanctified to be, what is that? No, anyway, I can't remember what the preacher said. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into just this, you know, hype of, of you got to just be happy all the time and to opti be optimistic about everything. But the truth of the matter is our world is a very pessimistic place for the most part. And many Christians find themselves in that same thing. But the creed is telling us here that there ought to be a point of optimism. Not optimism because of the way things are right now. Not optimism because we, uh, we have something that, is, you know, that, that is, is a blessing that is just far beyond anything you ever imagined that is material or circumstantial. But we ought to have an optimism because we know that the one in whom we have trusted, the one in whom we have put our faith, the one who is the one who called us, redeemed us, and gave us life is coming again in glory. He's coming in victory. He's coming to show the world who he is. Now, we do live in a day where some people worry about nuclear holocaust, and they, they worry that their nuclear 
uh, things all over, you know, and, and one mad person go crazy and pull the trigger or terrorists get a hold of a nuclear device and, and, and wreck chaos across a country or the world. Others worry about bankruptcy. And they look at our economy and they say, oh man, we're in a real fix because the economy is just going south and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of hope for doing others. Others just are pessimistic because of a weariness of old age and not having any purpose and not having any meaning because they just come to a certain point. Nothing worthwhile, nothing to hope for. Now a lot of people come along and, and offer us basically heaven on earth. The utopians that... that kind of were the, at the very heart of Marxism, came along and said, we will make heaven on earth. We will give you a utopia. We will make things good for everybody. We will equalize the wealth. We'll make everybody the same, and everybody will be happy, and it'll just be like heaven on earth. Others came along like the Jehovah's Witness and said the same thing. We'll, give you a, we'll have heaven on earth because of, of our faith in in, in, in Jehovah, our faith in God. Uh, they, they, gave, they attracted people by bright hopes of heaven on earth. Uh, one following the revolution and one following Armageddon. But the promise is basically the same, a utopia whereby we just feel good and right and everything is fine in this life. The scripture promises us great reward. Jesus talks about that. In, in verse 12 of, of Revelation 22, the scripture promises us a home in heaven with our Lord when we die. We talked about that some this morning and, and some of the promises that come, a better promise, a better covenant that, that the scripture does promise us. But it's not a utopia here and now on this earth. It's a time when Christ is going to come and, if you will, establish and set all things in order. All things as they were in the beginning before the fall. All things as they should be, but they're not because Adam and Eve fell into sin and we inherited that sin. We, had, we inherited, we became a part, uh, the, the sin nature became a part of our life. And so we suffer because of that. Some people, some people think, well, you know, the second coming is kind of a, kind of a pie in the sky kind of thing. They think it'll never happen. But I want you to know that we have the promise of God's word. We have the assurance from God himself through his word that indeed he is coming, and indeed he is coming with reward. Indeed he is coming to judge the living and the dead, and that is a reality, and that is a fact. And we're not going to die because some maniac we're not going to come to an end because some maniac gets a nuclear device and sets it off. We're not even going to die because we're just not taking good enough care of the, of the atmosphere and so the carbon problem is happening and we're going to see the earth disintegrate because of our bad stewardship. Not to say we're always good stewards of the earth, but it's not going to end that way. It's going to end when Christ returns and when it comes to, his, uh, to the perfect ending that he has planned and he has purposed. Now, he may use some of those things. I don't know how he's going to do it, but we know he's going to do it. Now, the, the obvious question that the creed does not answer is when is this going to take place? When is he going to come again? I, I know one of the things I find with, with many immature, uh, and when I say immature, I mean young Christians, people who have just come to faith in Christ, the, the big question they always want to have is about what about the second coming? 
We've heard about it. We, we, they're just young enough in the faith that they really do believe that sort of thing's going to take place. They, they say, when's he coming? How's it going to happen? Uh, give me, tell me about these signs of his coming. That Can you interpret those for me? And give me a little bit of indication about when that might take place. And they're always disappointed when I say, no, I really can't. And they say, well, well, why not? You're a pastor. You've been trained as a theologian. You, you, ought to, you ought to know these things. Well, the truth of the matter is, the Scripture says they're not for us to know. I, I love the way, I, I think the best expression, I believe it's in the Baptist faith and message, as a matter of fact, for, for how that's going to happen, when it simply says that God in his own time, in his own way, will bring all things to a good and proper conclusion. God in his own time, in his own way. And we'll talk about in a minute how our responsibility is simply to just be ready because that's what Christ told us to do. Well, the, the, the teaching of the creed and the teaching of the scripture, which the creed draws from, is, is honestly eclipsed in our day. Now, you remember, we, we talked about the eclipse of God before. Here we're talking about the eclipse of a doctrine, the doctrine of his second coming. And, and wh what does it mean to eclipse something? It means for something else to get in the way, doesn't it? If you have a sun, uh, an eclipse of the sun, the moon comes between the earth and the sun and it blocks it out. It appears that the sun loses all its power, all its strength, all its life, uh, light, but that is not true. It's, it's merely blocked for a period of time, generally a very brief period before it comes bursting forth in glory again. And, and, and we've talked about how God is eclipsed many times in our world. Because things get in the way. Things get between us and him, and we don't see him in all his glory. We don't see, and we let things kind of block our vision of him. That's what's happened in many ways about this doctrine in our world. We have eclipsed the doctrine of Christ's return, and, and that's a sad thing. Because the early Christians were thrilled at the idea of Christ coming again. Just read the book of Acts. Just read the, the epistles. They were anticipating. They were looking. They were thrilled that he was coming again. There's over 300 references in the New Testament to the second coming of the Lord. They were expecting that. They were anticipating that. They were eager about it. It, it made them hopeful in ways that nothing else did. As a matter of fact, those 300 references in the, in the New Testament documents is an average of one reference every 13 verses to the coming, second coming of our Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's quite, that's quite an overwhelming discussion that one out of every 13 verses tends to mention or talk about or allude to the second coming of our Lord. But today, quite honestly, we're not that thrilled about it. We're not that excited about it. It doesn't seem like in the church of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, sometimes it, it seems to be almost an embarrassing point. It, it's almost, you know, when people, when, you, when you're talking to people and, and someone brings up the second coming, watch Christians. People who are in church every Sunday, when that subject's brought up, they'll kind of want to change the subject and just kind of back away from it a little bit because they know that the average secular person is going to say, what, you believe that's true? Are you out of your mind? There's a, there's, a, there's a secular bias that causes us many times to shrink away from it. Why is that the case? Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why that we could look at. Uh, first, there is a, is, is what is, this is, it's a time reaction from a century and a half of intense prophetic study expressing a spirit of prayerlessness and pessimism about the church and doom-watching detachment from the world. Now, what I mean by that? I mean, 
for a century and a half, we have seen the whole idea of, of the second coming being uh, scorned and, and, and kind of put on the back burner and kind of looked at. There's not been a, a, spir a, prayer, a spirit of prayer, a prayerfulness and, and looking forward to that coming in optimism, but there's been a prayerless pessimism within the church of Jesus Christ. There's been this idea of doom is coming, but we'll be snatched out of it. So we detach ourselves from the world. We don't think about what, what is going to happen. We just say, someday we'll get out of this mess. And, and that doesn't really help us look forward to it because we don't see it in, a, in light of reality. Second, we live in a day when, when there's quite honestly a, a growing skepticism that Christ, uh, uh, that, that Christ personally and physically rose from the dead and, and ascended, as the earlier part of the, the creed talks about. We live in a day where people say, well, you know, it's really hard to believe that somebody died and physically rose again. It's really hard to believe that, that he was standing there with all these people and all of a sudden he was taken up and poof, he was gone into the presence of God to be seated at the right hand. I mean, uh, in our day, there's just a real skepticism toward the, the, the resurrection and the ascension and, and other miracles in Christ's life. So it's only natural. It's only a normal outworking that it spawns doubts as to whether we can ever hope to see him again. I mean, we don't believe, if we start failing to believe the truth of the foundational doctrines of the Bible, how much more will we say, well, that which is yet to come must just be a dream? And, and a lot of churches have come to that point. Why do they do that? Well, I like what, what one writer said. He said, today we think less and less about the better things that Christ will bring us at his reappearance because our thoughts are increasingly absorbed by the good things we enjoy here. You know, we, we, we think less and less about the better covenant. We think less and less about the better coming. We think less and less about the better reunion with Christ because our thoughts are absorbed increasingly by good things that we have here. But there's better things that are, are to come when the Lord returns. This is, this is, we live in a culture of timidity is a third reason why it's kind of been uh, eclipsed. You know, while we, we look at the material, we look at what we can touch, there's a self-sufficiency in, in Western culture and Western secularism and all sorts of ideologies that, that hesitate to, to even think about anything beyond this world. And it's infiltrated the church. And it's caused the church to be so fearful they'll be accused of being so heavenly minded they're no earthly good that they, that they fail to talk about the heavenly truths that are yet to come. And so they, they, they'll talk about social justice or they'll talk about you know, uh, economic justice on this earth and try to uh, somehow, uh, I was tickled that one of our college students called me the other day and he said, and, and she called Todd too, and she said, uh, let me ask you something. My professor asked me to respond to this question, and I've got till Monday to do it, and can you give me some help on it? And I said, sure, what, what, is, the, what is the proposition? What's the question? And she said, her professor said, how do you respond to this statement that Jesus was the first communist? And, uh, and I've heard that before. I mean, that wasn't anything new. It was new to her, though, and it kind of shook her up a little bit. And I said, well, there's a lot of things. Todd told her, well, he wasn't, he wasn't a political figure, for one thing. 
The second thing was he, he told us to share and to, to give and to, to give out of what God has blessed us with, but it was all a voluntary giving. It was never the government coming in and taking everything away and giving it to other people. Uh, there was no ideology in Christ that somehow said you can't have personal uh, property or possession. I mean, it went on and on. But there's this idea that somehow we've got to make it, uh, we've got to make it better in this world, make this world perfect, and that's what heaven is all about. That is not what heaven is all about. Doesn't mean that we don't work for better conditions and work for better things, but it's not the socialistic, communistic materialistic self-sufficiency that you see in so much of our world today. Well, it's eclipsed. It's coming. It's true. What does Jesus say about it? Well, if you look in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 44, this is what he says to us about this point of the, of the creed. Matthew 24 and 44. There he's talking about his second coming. And in verse 44, he simply says this. For this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. He's coming at an hour that you do not expect. He says, be ready. Anticipate. Be prepared. Well, we Christians today could learn a lot from the motto of the Boy Scouts. You know, be prepared. I mean, if that's true for a bunch of scouts running around camping and burning things and doing other things together, how much more true is it of us who are, who are in Christ and really do believe and know that he's coming again? Be ready. Be prepared. How do you do that? I think there's several practical suggestions how we can be ready for the second coming of our Lord. First of all, uh, as, as one person said, I believe this was, was the guy I quoted this morning, Andrew Murray. He said this, he said, Be sure that you keep short accounts with God and with men. Now, by that, don't let things mount up. Don't let indebtedness come. Don't, don't let, don't let it, it, as with God, don't let sins mount up without confessing and dealing with them and going before God on a daily basis. Keep a short account with God and keep short accounts with men. If you've offended someone, seek their forgiveness. If you've hurt someone, seek their forgiveness. If you've stolen from someone, seek restitution. That's what it means to keep short accounts. We prepare ourselves and we anticipate his coming more when we do that. Second thing is, take one day at a time. Now, that sounds like some kind of uh, psychological jumbo mumbo, but that's what Jesus basically said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34. In chapter 6, verse 34, he said, So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will, take care, will, will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble its own. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just take life one day at a time. Live in the present to the fullest extent of the presence of Christ. You know, part of our problem as Christians is we worry about what's going to happen out there. I'm, I'm the world's worst about that. I mean, I'm concerned. How's this going to happen? How's that going to develop? Is all this going to come together? And Jesus said, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Just live in my presence right now. 
Don't seek after all these things like the Gentiles do, for your heavenly Father knows what you need in all these things. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. We can be ready for the coming of Christ by focusing on our relationship with him today. Not by saying, well, maybe next week I'll, I'll get things right with God. Maybe next year I'll really start walking with the Lord. No, focus on your relationship today. Thirdly, we can be ready, as Jesus said, by heeding the advice of the old hymn that said, live each day as if you're last. Live each day as if you're last. You know, I remember when I was... A young Christian, the, 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 the vogue question among my campus crusade group when I was in college was this. You know, well, if you knew that today was your last day on earth, how, how, what would you differently in your life? And we'd come up with all sorts of things, what we'd do and how we'd handle it, how we'd get all this straightened out and, and everything. If this was the last day, we'd be sure and did this. And, and that's the wrong answer. The right answer should be, for a believer... Nothing. If this were the last day, you, you knew this was the last day you'd spend on earth, what would you do differently? Nothing. Because I'm seeking God's will. I'm seeking God's face. I'm seeking a relationship with Christ. I, I want to know him. I'm, I'm ministering to my family. I'm caring for the people that are around me. I'm doing what I'm called to do. So no, I wouldn't do anything differently. Sad thing is, we don't take that advice of the old hymn to live each day as if it's your last many times. And so we find ourselves struggling with that, even that question, even that thought. What would I do if somehow God told me this is my last day on the earth? And then finally, J.I. Packer made this statement that I think is pretty good. He said, if you're preparing for his coming... If you're being ready, when Jesus comes, he should find his people praying for revival and planning for world evangelism. If we really are prepared, Jesus would find us praying for revival in the churches and planning for world evangelism. And then he added, but ready to leave with him nonetheless. In other words, our planning, our programs, our Ideas are secondary to the great joy that would be to be with him. So the creed says he is coming. And he is coming as a judge. He is coming to, to, to bring reward, he says. He's coming to judge those. If you're in Christ, it, the, the scripture indicates that you are judged already. So it's a matter of coming with rewards for the believer. If you're not in Christ, it's coming to judge you because... You're not in Christ. And, and, and that's, again, a doctrine that our, our churches today have kind of shied away from. And we shied away from it to our detriment. Because, folks, it's the truth. He is coming again. And he's coming to judge the living, those who are still alive, and the dead, those who have already passed away. That's solid, biblical truth that you can bank on as being a reality. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you tonight for this systematic, beautiful expression of Christian doctrine and an understanding that as the creed expresses, you are coming again in glory, not as Savior and Lamb, but as lion and judge. And at that point, it'll be beyond the hope of anyone to move into Christ because that's the end. That's the time of judgment. It's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment, the Scripture says. And all that is a reality. So whether it's when he comes again or whether when he comes to get us at death, uh, Lord, that's a finality that we have to recognize and realize. Father, I pray tonight that you will help us to take seriously and anticipate and look forward to your coming. You're coming again. And Father, even as Packer said, may we be found praying for revival and planning for world evangelism. May we be found praying for revival in your churches that have abandoned your truth and seeking to take the Great Commission seriously to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your word and for your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.